Our sermon scripture today is uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Master, we proclaim your glory and honor this day. You are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are kind and good to all, and your mercy is over all that you have made. We thank you for gathering us here in this place today in your name. We thank you for calling us to worship. Thank you that your spirit equips and enables us to worship you in truth. Father, we pray your blessing upon this church that is called Milton Community Church. You've been so good to us, so generous in so many ways. But Father, it's not enough that we should be blessed by you. It's not enough that we should even hear from you. As Moses prayed following the Israelites' encounter uh, with him after the uh, golden calf incident, it is your going with us that makes us distinct from every other people. This is what we are here for. Dear God, be present with us. May your spirit move powerfully among us, refining us for your pleasure. May you be faithful, working in us to make us faithful, faithful for your honor, for your glory. Lord, for those that may be here today who do not know you, we pray that the gospel, even now, is pressing upon their soul. The truth of your love and forgiveness might draw them unto yourself, that today would be a new beginning, that today they might become a new creation in you. And Lord, for those of us who have a relationship with you, we pray that today you might fill us with your spirit, that our daily lives from this day forward, might be filled to overflowing with worship, exaltation of your great name. All this we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. It's easy to assume that our modern culture is uh, at odds or has become hostile to Christianity. One argument against this very idea is Christmas itself. 
One scholar on the subject, writing in Christianity Today a year or two back, noted that even atheists love Christmas. They see Christmas as Christianity appealing, inviting them even to join in. Unbelievers often feel closest to the faith at Christmas time. Christmas draws the skeptics rather than pushing them away. It's a major focus when you think about it, a major focus for more than 10% of our calendar year. It's getting earlier every year, isn't it? Begins even before Thanksgiving has cleared the decks. We may mock that, but it certainly makes it easier for us to be talking about Jesus. Even the Salvation Army becomes part of mainstream culture during this time of year. A Christian sacred day is a federal holiday in our land. That's pretty amazing. Many churches will have their largest attendance at Christmas meetings like this one today. Radio stations committed to secular formats, rock and roll formats, will change all of that in these six weeks leading up to the Christmas season. In those six weeks, you will hear unapologetic broadcast coming from secular stations where joy to the world, the Savior reigns, rings out. Or we're encouraged even to cast out sin and let Jesus come into our hearts. Or we'll hear offers of tidings of comfort and joy because Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Christians should be more aware and more grateful for the season. We often are put off by the hustle and bustle and we lose sight of exactly what is before us. We have wonderful opportunities to make Christ known during this Christmas season. Two weeks ago, we talked about the doctrine of the incarnation. Last week, Nathan led us in investigating the virgin birth, both very important doctrines to our faith. Today, we're going to look at the most common text associated with the Advent season, Luke chapter 2. Everyone, everyone probably in this room has heard Linus read Luke chapter 2 in explaining to Charlie Brown the meaning of Christmas, right? Even many unsaved people have heard this text of Scripture. There are three questions that have basically directed my preparation this week. One is to think about what is actually taking place here. There's a lot of tradition, there's a lot of assumption that gets mixed in with the details around the Christmas story. Number two, why is it here? Why, do, why does God give us this rendering of this particular event? And what are we expected to do with it or about it? Do we simply admire it or are we challenged to do something more? So let's think about Luke chapter 2 for a few moments together. First of all, I want you to see and know that it's a very familiar story right? A very familiar story. And Joseph went up from Galilee to Bethlehem, and Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census be taken. Now, we understand what a census is. It's an official counting of the people of the land, and at the heart of it was primarily done for taxation purposes. 
We know how many people we are. We know how, many, uh, how much money to expect to come in to the coffers. But why was this census implemented in Rome at this time? Well, Caesar Augustus was particularly fond of his censuses. He was a man of luxury. He enjoyed the sumptuous living that he was afforded. So anything to add to the coffers was something that was of particular interest to him. According to his diary, he recorded uh, that he had widespread censuses of his area for Rome on three different occasions, not to mention there were many more local census taking. So it was something that he was doing, but in that we see the providence of God working, right? I mean, Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth, but this compelled them to go back to the land of his heritage, which was Bethlehem. They wouldn't have been there probably at this time of year had it not been for the census. We have romanticized, sterilized, and dramatized the Christmas story to the point that we're not sure exactly what Scripture says about it. And I want us to think just a little bit and kind of clear that fog from our minds this morning. Mary was pregnant. We know that. But it's probably not true that the day they arrived in Bethlehem, she gave birth that night. We can probably just rule that out. Verse 6 of this passage implies to us that they spent a considerable time in the area. And we can also assume that they were not dumb enough to start making this journey, this long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, knowing that she was about to give birth. Even they would have stayed home and probably got some sort of special dispensation from, from the census. But they went and probably spent considerable time with family, with Joseph's extended family in that area. Tim Chafee did some study on this, and he talked about some of the misconceptions about the birth of Christ, like it happened in that short, compressed time frame, or that Jesus was actually in a stable somewhere, when in fact they were probably staying with relatives at the time. No one would have put a pregnant woman uh, out in the stable somewhere, or out in a cave somewhere. They would have made room, even though the household was probably full. When you look at uh, some of the language that's going on there, it's easy to see how some of these things are misconstrued. The Bible makes no mention of any innkeeper that turned them away. <laughs> In fact, this word inn that we focus on actually means more like a guest room. And so there was probably no room in the guest room uh, with Joseph's family, and so they were probably confined to the lower floor. Archaeologists have done a lot of digging, and they've found that these two-story homes would have a large guest quarters on the second floor, and down below they would have the house would be divided into two compartments. There would be a part for uh, living, and then there was a part where they would bring in the animals from outside for shelter and protection from thieves at night. And so that's where we can begin to see how being in an overcrowded house, they were in this situation, and probably because there was no place to put anything, that's why Jesus ended up in a manger or a trough 
that was designed for the animals to feed. Now, I'm not trying to destroy your image of Christmas, but what I'm trying to say is that we need to read only what's in the Scripture instead of taking our lead from dramas that have been performed in churches for a long time where we keep adding and embellishing things that weren't a part of the story at all. So what should we take away? We should probably think more about how it is by a virgin that Jesus came into this world and that he was really born. So he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so he's truly divine, but he's human. He was born into this world in flesh as a babe. He's a descendant of David, a la Joseph, who was part of the lineage of David. And these things affirm for us in powerful ways the providence, the sovereignty of a holy God who was working these things out since before the world began. Every last intimate detail. That's what we can trust. That's what we can look at and be concerned with. We're reminded again of his divinity because God dispatched this host of angels to announce the arrival of this special baby, the Son of God. So it's important for us to read what Scripture says and not get our information from traditions. It's unlikely also that Jesus was born in December. The Scripture says what? It says that the shepherds were out in the field at night. This was not an activity they would have been engaged in during the colder months of the year. They would have been doing this probably during lambing season, which would have been more closely toward the spring or certainly in the warmer months of the year, where the young lambs were being born. And that makes even more sense to us, doesn't it? That Christ would arrive, the Lamb of God would enter this world on a night when many more of these lambs were being born into the world. So the shepherds were out in the fields when the angels appeared. But not only are we reminded of the familiarity of the story, we're also told here the story points us to a vital truth. God dispatched heavenly messengers to announce this message. It caught the shepherds off guard. They were on keen alert. If young lambs were being born, they had a special alertness for the predators that would be making any threats toward these young lambs. The angel said, don't be afraid. But the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Now we understand, Scripture communicates to us just how fearsome a thing the glory of God can be. The children of Israel saw this in Exodus 24, verses 16 and 17. It says, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Or in 1 Kings chapter 8, after Solomon had completed construction of the temple and they brought the ark of the temple to place it there. And it says that when the priest came out of the holy place, the ark was placed there. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
It's a pretty daunting sight and experience that these common, everyday, humble shepherds were encountering. The angel said, I'm bringing you good news. Good news of a great joy. Good news implies that something other was on the forefront of their minds and thoughts, right? They needed good news for some reason. I'm bringing you good news of great joy, and it's for all people. Born this day, humanity again is on display. This is the incarnation. God himself has condescended to enter into this world, to take on flesh, to seek and to save that which was lost. A Savior implies that there is a need to be saved, that there's something to be feared. The Jews had had more than their share of oppression. Egyptian bondage, Assyrian plundering, Babylonian captivity, Roman rule and oppression, one after the other, one wave after the other. So we can imagine if we put ourselves in their mindset, Israel was considered a backwater country. They were the lowest of the low. They were looked down upon by almost everyone. The Romans considered them to be low-level and to be religious oddballs. And so for them to be thinking about someone, a Messiah, to come, they were probably thinking about a political leader that's going to flip the script, a great military leader. Think about the people they've had experience with in their history, the stories they'd heard about Moses liberating them from Egyptian bondage, or Gideon leading them into fights against the Ammonites, or Deborah, or Joshua, or David. So we can give them a little bit of slack here if they're thinking about a great leader who would come in and turn things around and lead them to finally be on top of the heap in this world. That's what they were thinking about. That's what they were anticipating. I bring you good news of great joy, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior, a liberator, a deliverer is coming. Why? Not because of oppression. All of these things are important. All these things were real. All these things are things worth resisting, but it's worse than that because there's a cosmic treason in the history books. There's cosmic treason that occurred in the Garden of Eden after God had created all that is and made man after his own image and placed him there to be the vice regent to rule over all things, all creation, and bring it in to reflect his glory, to show his glory. And Adam and Eve, in breathtaking fashion, rebelled against the Creator God, the sovereign God who's in charge of everything. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 3, 10 through 12, it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, 
not even one. Romans 5, 16 says, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And what does that condemnation look like? Romans 6, 23 says, The wages of this sin is death. Death. Death that is physical. We're all well acquainted with it. But death that is spiritual. Separation from God who is life and there is no life apart from God. And to die physically while being separated from God is the essence of condemnation. Wages communicates that sin has earned death, has earned judgment, everlasting judgment. And yet the free gift, Romans 6.23 says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, communicates that forgiveness and eternal life cannot be earned. Danny read John 3, 16 through 19 there earlier. It's one of my favorite passages. We all focus on John 3, 16, right? We love John 3, 16. We memorize John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we forget verses 17 through 19. And they're very important, even critical for us. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. But in order that the world might be saved through Him, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because the works were evil. Clarifying John 3.18, those who do not believe and trust in Christ have neither positive nor neutral standing before God. They are condemned before God for their sins because they have not trusted in God's only solution for their guilt. Jesus didn't come to condemn because the world was already condemned. We have brought condemnation upon this world. Jesus came to save. Hence, a Savior is born. A Savior is born. Our greatest need, the reason He's the greatest gift is because this reflects our greatest need. Eternal, everlasting separation from a holy God. That's what's at at stake here. And the only hope we had was his intervention. There's nothing we could do. Nothing we could offer. Nothing we could do better. Nothing we could refrain from doing that was worse. Apart from faith in Christ's finished work, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, all are condemned to perish in hell. But in Christ, there is forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life in God's presence, restored to being His image bearers, restored to what He made us to be only through Christ. What an incredible story. What a sobering and compelling truth. But there's more. It demands a personal response. It demands a personal response. Matthew's gospel tells us how King Herod responded. 
He rightly understood it as a threat to his kingdom and his life. He tried to destroy Jesus. He tried to put him away. He wanted to just erase him from history. The world was continuing on with daily affairs, seemingly unaware. Conducting a census, facilitating human governing structures, collecting and paying taxes. Shepherds were out watching their flocks. Commerce was continuing on. God entered creation in a remarkable fashion. The angelic hosts of heaven arrived to announce God's arrival. The rest of the world was indifferent and apathetic. God was doing something huge that had been on his calendar for eternity. His glorious announcement came to a bunch of humble shepherds. They were lambing, watching over their sheep. Fear not, good news, great joy for all people, a Savior. The world was fretting over population management, climate control, taxes, infrastructure, business as usual. Rulers were focused on preserving their own political power. They had no clue what was taking place out in the Judean hills. There was a cradle out there rocking the world for all of eternity. The eternal plan for restoring God's image bearers was in full, unbridled motion. The world walking aimlessly through its daily routines like zombies that we see on the television screens. The heavenly hosts were praising God with passionate worship. All heaven was compelled to praise God in the highest. I've tried to get my mind around this phrase, glory to God in the highest. I can't do it. I did my doctoral thesis on the glory of God. I still can't explain it, Nathan. Four years, studying, writing, searching. I still can't explain the glory of God. It is the essence of who he is. The full essence of everything that he is, not just the things he does, but who he is that drives him to do all the things that he does. And they say, all glory to God in the highest. It's, it's without containment. It's without measurement. And all heaven was compelled to praise God in the highest. How should we be affected or challenged? If heaven was struck by this, how are we to be moved by it? After all, we're the ones Christ came to seek and to save. This reality demands a response. Every soul that has a beat in the heart must respond, and they will. Some resent the gospel. They claim it makes them feel guilty. Some are threatened by the gospel. It confronts their preferences, their pleasures. Some are frightened by the gospel because it calls them to turn away from their fleshly comforts. Others are apathetic to the gospel because they don't think they need it. They think it's a crutch. People are in bondage to sin and are condemned even if they won't admit 
that it's true. One day, the day God has appointed for judgment is going to arrive, and it'll come unannounced. We already have all the announcing that's going to be made, but it's going to occur. It'll come without warning, and there'll be no more grace. Accounts will be settled. The condemned will be sentenced to spend eternity in hell apart from God. I plead with you to seriously consider the gospel's claims today. To turn from trusting in self and effort, intellect, works. To turn from trusting in the things, the idols that dominate this world. To turn to Christ and call out to Him for salvation. Trust in Him alone and seek His gift of eternal life before it's too late. Those of us who are in Christ are challenged to lift our hearts and our voices and worship Almighty God with all that we are. My challenge to you is that in this coming year, that will be something that dominates your thinking day by day, not just once or twice a year or on specific occasions, but all the time. That you would wake in the mornings thinking about praising and honoring and worshiping a holy God. And that it would be the last thought that occupies your minds before you drift off into slumber. It is said that George Frederick Handel composed his amazing musical, The Messiah, in approximately three weeks. I don't know if that's true or not. I have to take their word for it. It was apparently done at a time when his eyesight was failing and when he was facing the possibility of being in prison because he couldn't pay his debts. However, he kept writing in the midst of these challenges till the masterpiece, which included the majestic Hallelujah Chorus, was completed. Handel later credited the completion of his work to one ingredient, joy. It was, he was quoted as saying that he felt as if his heart would burst with joy at what he was hearing in his mind. And sure enough, as we listen to the entire work of the Messiah or to the Hallelujah Chorus, it brings great joy to our hearts. My prayer is that the joy of the Lord will fill you today as you contemplate vast God who condescended from the glories of heaven to come into this cesspool of a world, brokenness, and take on flesh and live as we live among us that he might show us the perfection that he requires of us and that he might die a cruel and hard death as a substitute for us to set us free from our sin, that we might be with him forever. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those whom he is well pleased and he is pleased with only those who are in Christ, I can assure you. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy, for the opportunity we have today to celebrate, to honor and to celebrate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ for this incredible plan put together before anything was made that you committed to, that you committed to do. And Lord, we stand here today without the words 
without the ability to properly praise you, but trusting that your spirit might work in and through us and take the utterances of our voices or the thoughts of our minds, the desires of our heart, make them pleasing and honorable to you, to exalt your name, that all may know who you are. For we ask it in Jesus' name.